Let us pray. May the words of my lips and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In our series, The Gospel According to David, we have seen many important moments in biblical history, be it Hannah's prayer, David's anointing as king, or, of course, his famous battle with Goliath. As famous and wonderful as those accounts are, there is actually nothing in David's story that is more important than the chapter that we've been looking at these past two weeks, 2 Samuel 7. It is an absolutely crucial passage if we're going to understand the plans and purposes of God. Last week we saw that God used David's plan to reveal God's greater plan. That God would work through the line of David to establish an eternal kingdom. One that was ultimately fulfilled by Jesus himself. This week we read David's response to God's plan. And it is a beautiful prayer of worship and praise and humble faithfulness. There was no guarantee that it was going to go that way. We could think back to our friend Saul, who we read much about weeks ago, the one that David replaced on the throne. When God, through the prophet Samuel, laid out his plan for how a king should rule, Saul decided he had a better plan, that he knew better than God, and he went his own way. Kicked up a fuss the entire time, and in the end, it cost him everything. It's the posture of one who has dug in their heels, wondering, what's wrong with my plan? (laughs) What's wrong with the plan that I've come up with, Lord? Why can't I have things my way? After all, I know what I'm doing with my life, right? I've got a great plan for life. How often have we been there ourselves? And then years later, we look back and we think, you know, it's a really good thing that God didn't follow my plan. (laughs) Wouldn't have worked out so well. That's not how David responded, though. He didn't dig in his heels. God corrects him and David receives it. And his prayer tells us why. Because within this prayer, we see that David knows the truth that his Father in heaven is a God of revelation and a God of invitation. And David can see this because he has things in their proper order. And that's what I want to unpack for us this morning. I want to start with this first thing, that our Father in heaven is a God of revelation. What do I mean by this? Well, in one sense, it's a very simple truth that God has revealed himself. He has made himself known, his plans and his purposes in this world. And sometimes that's a very easy thing for us to see. If we think about our passage last week, right? The Lord breaks in and he says to Nathan, go and tell my servant David my plan. It's wonderful when he does that for us, isn't it? It's what David's referring to. To in verse 27 when he says, For the Lord, 
of hosts, the God of Israel, has made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. God made known his plan for David and actually for all the world. But we see this acknowledgement of God's revelation, not just in the obvious moments of David's prayer, but throughout it. David says in verse 19 that God has spoken, that the Lord speaks of his servant's house. In verse 21, he says, because of your promise and according to your own heart, referring to the Lord here, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. God has spoken and he has revealed to David. There's two things we want to see here. The first is that it is absolutely true that without God revealing himself or his plans and purposes, we will not know who he is or what his plans are. David needs the Lord to open his eyes before he can see what the Lord has planned for him. And God has spoken, and now David sees. That's the way it works. God reveals himself to us of his own accord. We can think of Abraham here who knew nothing of God until the Lord called him and built from him a people. Or perhaps even more famously, at least, at least for Christians more famously, we can think of Paul, the persecutor of the church until Jesus broke in so powerfully that it changed Paul's life forever. He revealed himself to Paul. And as Paul makes plain in basically all of his writings, he did nothing to deserve that. To know the Lord, we need him to open our eyes. We need him to reveal himself, to speak. It's true for every one of us. It's what we all need. Now, for some of us, that might not sound very encouraging. (laughs) Because if we need the Lord to reveal himself to us, that means we're dependent upon him. That's where things can get tough for us, isn't it? We don't want to be dependent. And of course, this begs the question, what if God decided not to make himself known? Where are we then? And here's where David's prayer is helpful for us. He says that God spoke to make these things known to his servant. He did it for that purpose. God, because he loves his people, has willingly and freely chosen to reveal himself. God, in his mercy, desires to be known. You see, the reality that God is a God of revelation, it's not just one of these theological truths that we sort of just have out there and we kind of know to be true, but it makes no impact at all. It has profound implication for how us as followers of Jesus live this life. It matters that since the very beginning, since creation itself, God has been revealing himself to the world. He uses the created order to do it, as Paul teaches us in Romans 1. David shows us in verse 23 that God redeeming Israel out of Egypt was a means of revealing himself, of specifically making himself a name. God has worked throughout history so that people would know who he is. 
And he has done this most clearly in Jesus Christ. The author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. You know what that means? It means if you want to know God, you have to know Jesus. There is no way other way, no way around Jesus. It is by Jesus that we know who God is. It is by Jesus that we see him. God came in the person of Jesus Christ so that we would know our Father, so that we might see God himself. And i got to tell you, when I hear that, it actually makes me kind of jealous. Jealous of those who got to walk with Jesus, who got to see him in the flesh. I would have liked to have been there. (laughs) We need to remember, though, God continues to reveal himself. His revelation of himself didn't end with the resurrection. It continues to this day. It's why he's left us his word, which Paul tells us is God-breathed, that the scriptures find their, their origin, their beginning in God. It is his primary means of showing himself to the world. And so we might not get to physically walk with Jesus But we still learn of him. We still hear of him. We can still see him. By by the power of the Spirit, God opens our eyes to Jesus through his scriptures, primarily. God desires to be known, and he has made the way to be known in Jesus, in his word. And so the question then that we have to ask is, do we know him? If he desires to be known, do we actually know him? Do we know Jesus? Let me tell you why that question matters. It's a big one. It's really important. Here's why. Why is God doing this? Why is God making himself known? Why does it matter? Why couldn't he just be up there and we could have this sort of general idea that there is a God and that be good enough? Well, as always, the words of Jesus himself are instructive for us. John 17, he says this, And this is eternal life. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. It is in our knowing of God, our knowing him, and knowing Jesus, that redemption is found. That's why it matters. David is worshiping God for making himself known because it is the revelation of God that makes redemption possible. If God decided not to reveal himself, we would all be in a whole lot of trouble. But his desire is to be known. His desire is to live in the perfect love relationship with his people that he created for us from the foundation of the world. And so he shows himself, he reveals his plans and purposes, and we rightly praise him for it. Now, the wonderful truth here is that God doesn't stop at revealing himself. He doesn't just say, here I am, do with it what you will. He's the God of revelation and the God of invitation. We see in our passage that God invites his people into the work that he is doing in this world. It's one way he invites us. Even a cursory reading, even if you skim this passage, the one thing you can come away with is that God is the one doing the work. 
Over and over again, we hear of what the Lord is doing. The Lord reveals himself. The Lord establishes and redeems Israel. It's all him. Now, this is no small thing. We don't want to overlook this. Because like when David decided he needed to build a temple for the Lord, we get the order of this all wrong all the time. We think the Lord needs us to do a work for him. But God makes it clear that he's already doing a work in this world, and then we get to be a part of that. David comes into the presence of God in this passage, and he is in absolute awe of what the Lord is already doing. Verse 18, he says, Who am I, O Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? He acknowledges that what is happening in his life is all the Lord's doing, and it is so much greater than David could have ever imagined. Do you think he ever dreamed for a moment while he was in the field with the sheep that one day he would be king and that through him, redemption would come? Through his line, a savior would come. Do you think that ever entered his mind? The Lord had something far greater planned. David is absolutely captured by the wisdom and the might of God, and so he continues. And yet, this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come, and this is instruction for mankind. Oh, Lord God, what is he saying here? It's that plan. It's the incredible plan of the Lord to bring about his eternal kingdom. And he is doing that work through his chosen people, through the line of David. It is God doing the work. It is fulfilled in Jesus, who came as a member of the people of God. He brings about his plan through his people. Now, that might not sound like a big difference here, (laughs) that I'm kind of splitting hairs. But this ordering is crucial. We cannot lose this. Because Christians often think and act like we're the ones doing for God, right? As if God needs us to do all these things for him. We've got to check all the boxes for God, right? Well, where does that leave us? We're checking all the boxes, we're doing all the things we're supposed to do, and then things don't go well. What happens? We get angry, don't we? We get bitter. Or we end up in despair, believing that we're not good enough, that we're not doing enough, that we're not being enough for God, thinking, well, I guess if I really loved God, I'd just do more. I'd spend all of my time at at a homeless shelter or a food pantry, and that's the only way I can actually show I love God. I've got to do all the stuff. We even do it with our spiritual lives. People wonder all the time, why is my prayer life dry? Why does it feel like I'm just throwing words in the air? Or why when I open the scriptures and I read the Bible, it just seems like words on a page. I'm not getting anything from it. In most cases... It's because we've turned those things into things we're supposed to do for God. Rather than receiving his gracious invitation, which is what those things are. Prayer is God's gracious invitation to sit and speak with him. To speak with the God who has created us and loves us more than we could ever imagine. Scripture is his invitation to learn of him. To grow, to be more like him. 
Even our service, it's an invitation into the life of Jesus who came to serve, not to be served. It starts with the invitation. Without that proper ordering, all we're going to get is spiritual burnout. Because if it all depends on us, we're in a lot of trouble. Because we'll never do enough, not on our own strength. And in reality, if we start digging deep, what do we find? Well, we treat God that way because actually we're trying to make ourselves God, right? We're making it all about us. Because if the Lord needs me, if God needs me to do all these things for him, who's the one in charge? And we like being in charge, don't we? I love it. So much better. If the Lord needed needed David to build him a house, who's really the king here? That's why the Lord says, "Uh, no, that's not how we're doing this. I'm building you a house. You need me. Not the other way around. And then I'm going to invite your son to build the house that you're talking about. And it's going to be even greater than you can imagine. God is establishing the right and healthy order of things. This order matters. It's not splitting hairs. And David responds pretty differently than most of us would, right? It'd be so easy to hear, you know, your plan isn't the right one and just pout and complain about it and want to give up and quit just like Saul did. Because it's not in our nature to submit, to see ourselves as the ones in need. It's why we don't like walking by faith, really. It's why we want to know what the future has in store, while we want to know all all the steps and and how everything's going to work out. It's why, actually, a lot of Christians get kind of obsessed with the book of Revelation and predictive prophecy, right? Because if we know everything, we don't need faith. And if we know everything, guess what? We've got some control now. But that's not what David does here. It's because he has the order right. He heard the correction of God and he receives it. And he sees that it is the Lord working, the Lord revealing, the Lord inviting. And he humbly receives it. And he does that. Because he receives the most important invitation that the Lord extends. The invitation to relationship with him. Without that relationship, everything else I've said ain't going to matter. It's going to make no difference in our lives. But God invites us to that relationship. And we see this in the language that's used throughout 2 Samuel 7. We can think back to last week, right? The passage begins, David is with Nathan. And the text simply calls David the king. His name isn't used at all. Only his title. It's reminding us of who David is. He is the king. Then God appears on the scene. And you remember how he refers to David? After spending some verses establishing who David is, that he's the king, God speaks, and what does he say? Tell my servant David. There's no royal language here. 
just my servant David. In fact, the only time that God uses royal language at all is when he reminds David that he chose David to come and be not king, but prince over his people Israel. The point of that language is to remind David and all of us of who's really king here. Who's the one in charge? As Israel's true king, God chose David. And in his verse 23 makes plain, he has called a people to himself. And notice the language there. David says the Lord redeemed Israel to be his people, specifically saying, whom you redeemed for yourself. Not just as great as it would have been, redeem them out of slavery, but he redeemed them for himself to be his people so that they could have genuine and blessed life with God. That is what he redeemed them for. That is what he is inviting them into. It's the same idea that Paul talks about when when he talks about Christians being bought with a price because of what Christ has done for us as the people who who have accepted God's gracious invitation. We are those who belong to Jesus because we are in a relationship with him that he has invited us into and made possible. We are the ones that he has redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and sin into his kingdom of glorious light to have eternal life with him. And we enter that kingdom through the reception of his gracious invitation. There's no other way. One of the things that stood out to me most in this passage was not David's words, as beautiful as they are. It's a wonderful prayer, but it's actually not his words. It was his posture. It's what he did with his body. Verse 18, it tells us that King David, and notice the word king, is back in the text now. The author's reminding the readers of who David is, that he is the tippy-top of the Israelite food chain. There's nobody more important or more powerful than David. And then we read that this king went into the presence of God and he sat before the Lord. And it's that word that grabbed me. And I got to tell you, I had a hard time focusing on anything else. He sat before the Lord. That is not the posture that one expects of a king. The king is the one that people come in and kneel before. And yet here he is. He comes into the presence of God and he sits at his feet. It's the posture of of a student to a teacher, or perhaps better yet, a, a child to a parent. It's a posture of humility, of submission. It's a, it's a physical representation of the heart of faithfulness. I'll admit the temptation was to say, man, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if we had leaders that had that sort of humility? But really what we should be saying is, wouldn't it be great if I had that sort of humility? That we as the people of God 
who know and love Jesus would have that kind of humility that we would come into the presence of God and we would sit at his feet and learn from him. Because it's the posture we need. It's the posture that all of us have to have. It's the posture that shows we finally got the order right. That he is God and we are not. Sorry to break that to you. But as God, he has invited us to come to him so that he can love us and care for us as only a perfect father can. It is the posture that grabbed me. And then these first words of David, they're so telling. What does he say? Who am I? Oh, Lord God. Who am I? Who are we, Lord, that you would die for us? Who are we, Jesus, that you would call us to yourself to be redeemed and invited to live with you? Who am I? Do I know you? Is that our posture when we come before the Lord? Or are we thinking it's all about what I'm doing for him? And if I haven't done enough, then maybe I shouldn't even come before him. He invites us. It's the freedom of the gospel. God's plan to reveal himself and redeem his people is completed in Jesus Christ. The work being accomplished, he then invites us into what he is already doing and done in this world, making himself known so that more and more people might find that redemption that is on offer. Jesus has come for us, and then he bids us to come to him, to be his very own. It's the truth that brings joy and assurance to David's heart. He cries out, you are God, and your words are true. You have promised this good thing to your servant. For you, O Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Jesus is the beginning and the end of God's eternal kingdom, the beginning and end of all creation, of God's plan, of our, the whole point of our entire lives. It is Jesus. He is the plan, and he is far greater than any plan we could have ever dreamed up. Redemption and eternal life through relationship with Jesus. Do we have it? Do we know him? Who are you? You are one he died for. Let's pray. Who am I, Lord, that you would call a sinner like me to yourself? Who are we that you would die for us and that we might be so loved so perfectly? Father, we pray that this day and every day you would continue to bring us into your presence, that you would give us a heart to sit at your feet, to humbly submit ourselves to you, for you are the true and great king, and your plan is so much greater than anything we'll come up with. Father, you are worthy of our worship. Give us a heart for Jesus, and it is in his name we pray. Amen.